Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Hi, Chrissy, are you there? I'm here. Oh, thanks for joining us this morning. Um, Could you do a quick introduction for everyone for us, please? Absolutely. My name is Chrissy Kelly. I live in the Central Valley of California, called Fresno, California, and I have two boys. Grayson is nine. And Parker is seven, and both of my boys have autism. So over the years, in an effort to share awareness and share the ups and the downs of our life, I write a blog. It's called Life with Grayson and Parker. And I also write for the Huffington Post and Autism Speaks. Um, I call myself a world changer. And I'm a writer and photographer. Did you say you call yourself a world changer? Yes. I wear a bracelet to change the world. Change the world. I, I always say I'm a behavior changer, and I guess you're just trying to change the behavior across the world. I like that world changer. Um, but thanks for taking the time to meet with us today. You know, recently I've been following you for, for quite some time, and um, I think it's pretty funny that we have the same last name but no relation other than our uh, affection for all things science uh, yes. and trying to figure out how to how to carve this path that we are walking down um so i I think you know it's really cool for me to connect with you it feels like a local celebrity or um well california is as local as we get to hawaii um but i've noticed you know especially recently a lot of talk about inclusion and um i know that that's something that's really passionate to you can you speak to us about like what is inclusion um and you know where has that how has that come to be part of something that you are advocating for? So inclusion um, is so important to me. I mean, basically just top line, it's a civil right protected by federal law. It's a socially just thing to do. Um, it's research shows that both parties, the included and the includee, um, benefit from inclusion. Um, but when it first became really important to me, uh, Grayson, my youngest, we were in early intervention preschool. And at the time, I was just thinking, like, language delay. Um, I wasn't really sure what was going on. We were in a classroom with other children who also received early intervention. And none of these children were talking. Um, None of them were able to play with toys or sit around a, a table to have snack time. There was a lot of screaming, a lot of outbursts. And I felt like the more we went to these early intervention preschools, the worse things got. And so the more I did research, the more I realized how important peer models are for children with autism. You know, the three main core criteria of autism is communication, social skills or socialization, and behavior. And none of these things are modeled in the preschool we were going to. So I started looking around for inclusive uh, options for Grayson. I try not to even say opportunities because it's not an opportunity, it's a right. And so I was looking for options and I couldn't find anything. So at the time, we just hired a babysitter to go with him to a general ed private preschool. And I went with him the first few times and everyone, you know, these kids are two and three years old. When it was time to line up, they lined up. When it was time, oh, pick up your crayons, they picked up all of them. 
I, they didn't have to prompt each one, pick up that crown, pick up that crown, pick up that crown. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, are we aiming too high here? And then weeks go by and months go by, and I go and observe him at preschool. And when they said it's time to line up, lo and behold, there goes Grayson lining up. There's Grayson picking up his crayons. There's Grayson playing pretend games and responding to peers, whereas before when a peer came up into his space, it wouldn't be unusual if he started yelling at them. So that's when I really saw the impact of what peer models could do. But then I also saw the impact vice versa. Grayson made a little friend in this preschool. Her name is Hannah. And Hannah would ask me the best questions. Why doesn't Grayson talk? Why is he screaming? Why did he fall on the ground? She was so interested in the answers. She would ask me, can I talk to him like you talk to him? With, you know, two or three word sentences. And I remember she said, Grayson, let's go down slide. She put her hand out. And he reached out, and they walked over to the side. And seeing the impact on both set of students, um, it changed my life. It changed what I knew we needed to get out of our educational experience. And it's not just about test scores. And it's not just about perfect behavior and segregation. It's about a community of people being very different, but all one community. And so that's when it started to become extremely important to me. You remind me uh, in that story of Grayson about a time when I kind of made that connection as an educator. So I remember I was working in Cambridge Public Schools outside of Boston, and there was this sprightly young child, uh, about four four years old, maybe uh, four or five years old, in a preschool or kindergarten classroom, um, and there were uh, it was an inclusive setting, and this student um, was getting some one-on-one instruction, like some speech instruction during like a, a small break time in the classroom. And then when it was done, it was time to go to lunch. And instead of going to lunch, Olivia thought she would climb on the tables and then go under the table and go around the table and give us all a little bit of a run for our money. Um, and I kind of chuckle because I always find this, the three, four, and five-year-olds that I sometimes struggle the most with. And we, we kind of exhausted. I was there as a behavioral expert or input. And, you know, we were there and felt like we had tried, you know, the incentives and the, the appropriate coaching yeah. and the right language and, you know, body positioning. And then it just struck me, like, go get a peer. And we walked across the hall. And I remember just selecting this one little girl who they were always kind of gravitating towards each other. Um, their relationship looked different than, you know, this child's relationship with everyone else. And she walked right in, didn't even bat an eye that Olivia was standing on the table and said, Olivia, come on, let's go to lunch. I put her hand out. And Olivia took her hand, jumped off the table, and they walked to lunch. <laughs> I, just yeah. thought, I couldn't have done that if I had tried. You know, I'm not a peer. I'm not um, communicating with a child in the way that a same age peer is, right, um, about the things they find funny and comical. And I'm just a different height. I think that's yeah, really... <laughs> it's so different. The experience is so different. Just like for you or I, we gravitate to the people that are similar to ourselves. Yeah. Well, and then you bring up a really good point that I'm not sure a lot of people are discussing, you know, the impact on the general education or the impact on everybody else, the impact on the community. And I think that that brings us back to the point of inclusion which is to have a community, to have an inclusive experience, not a perfect experience, right? You know? Right. Um, so when you've 
been on this path, where have you seen or what have you seen help educators or help a setting um, succeed at, at really kind of doing inclusive practices well? And from your experiences, is it easier or harder as they age? So I think that the first thing that I always try to mention is inclusion can't happen unless both the special, special education and general education teacher are fully supported in their roles. Um, the times I've seen the most friction are when these teachers already do not feel they have their appropriate resources um, or professional development or even planning time. And so essentially we're adding one more thing that they're not going to be able to do well. And that's not fair to do to any educator. So number one, they absolutely must have the resources, um, appropriate caseloads, and the knowledge on how to do inclusion well, whether it's universal design for learning or maybe they've had experiences before. Um, that's when I've seen the best outcomes from these situations on both sides, both special education teacher supported as well as a general education teacher being supported. Um, and then the way I've seen it done the best is when, for me, I think it comes down to mindset. And you can kind of tell someone's attitude about it by your first conversation. Um, I love the teachers that either are like, yep, let's do it. I've got a plan. Let's make this happen. Or the teachers that are like, help me understand this student because I want to do what I need to do. I just don't know what it is. I always, I love questions because it welcomes learning and knowledge and a willingness to say, like you said, I'm not going to do this perfectly, but I'm going to do this. We're going to make this happen. Um, for me, I've, I've never advocated for all special education students spending 100% of the time in a general education classroom. I think it's, completely needs to be individualized. And with that understanding that you are truly individualizing it based on the child's strengths and not on resources or a convenient time to come or a time and age available, but on where a child can participate and, uh, and be an interactive part of the class. So before I used to think, well, yeah, the more time that they're in the class, the better, right? They're just sitting by peers. Like somehow osmosis is going to rub off all these skills. And our one of our BCBAs said that she likened it to um, Grayson was in a class. He was Grayson has autism and apraxia, and um, which has made, of course, speaking very difficult. But also reading is affected by that um, comprehension. Therefore. So he was in a classroom once during uh, English language arts time. Lots of long paragraphs of reading. And when I observed, he's really just sitting there. There were no adaptations or modifications. And understandably, he, he didn't understand what was going on. So in those instances, I realized, wait, he's in the class, but is he really, is this inclusion? He's not considered a meaningful member of the class. Um, he's not contributing. He, and our BCBA said that she likened it to if you or I went and just immediately went to a college and took advanced Russian. Are you going to be getting something just by sitting in there? Um, I wouldn't. What would happen would be I would be thoroughly confused. 
I would try really hard to pay attention, and then I would stop paying attention, and I would just check out. So essentially, it's almost too restrictive of an environment when you're in an environment that makes absolutely no sense, and you're given no bridges to, to understand or to walk over or to learn. So that's kind of my mentality on good inclusion and what it can look like and what it has looked like and been successful for us. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I, I think a lot about inclusion being a practice, not a place, right? When Absolutely. I hear you talk, yeah, it's it's about how we do it. It's about what we do. Some, to some extent, it's about where we do it and with who, but it's really more about that individualization and the idea for meaningful interaction and participation and progress, you know. And I've heard both. I've seen both from families and educators where they'll say, well, it's great for him to be in there because at least he's, he's seeing what the other children are doing. But in your situation that you just described, we might see a bunch of other students learning Russian, and that is not going to help me other no. than, you know, put me in a situation where I might be able to practice feeling overwhelmed and kind of right. coming to Feel the other side of that. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, for me, the students I work with, and I'm sure for you, your children, they have enough opportunity to practice frustration, and I'm really trying. Isolation, (laughs) confusion. To not make that more difficult. So something else that I say to people, whether I'm talking to parents or educators or both, is start with what's ideal, and then we can work out what's really possible, like what's going to actually happen. But tell me if we had a magic wand, what he would need. Okay, it's not... Well, we'd love to have an, you know, an aide or a behavior tech with him, but he only needs it for an hour and a half a day, but we have to contract people for their full, you know, their full hours. Hey, that's something a school team shouldn't necessarily tell a parent, but that's a right. legitimate barrier. So tell me your barrier, and then let's talk about, okay, what he needs, and then let's talk about how we get there. And I think what's scary for a lot of school teams is that if they say what he needs and they can't help you get there, they're worried that they've you know, bit off more than they can, they can chew. And so I have developed um, appreciation for the difficulties working inside some of the school systems across the United States. But regardless, I share in the frustration of, you know, how do we make this happen? How do we change mindsets? For me, it was the first child I met with autism. Um, uh, you can listen to my story. I'll tell you more about that some other time. But But when I saw him start to talk, when I saw him not engage in self-injurious behaviors for what felt like really kind of small reasons, when I saw him just, I was blown away. And I didn't know that that level of progress was possible until I saw it. So you do a wonderful job, Chrissy, of capturing what some of the struggles and the successes look like. And um, I really... um, you know, on behalf of the community, I want to thank you for, for being so vulnerable and for, for sharing with us such a private part of your lives because in doing so, you are letting other families know that they're not alone, letting other educators know that they, they have advocates and supporters for them too, um, and, and showing uh, people, you know, more about autism and about your children. And, you know, sure, we're teaching your children about the world, too, but I think for as much as possible, try and keep away from social media for a while. They're still young. Um, but before I end our time with you today, is there any other thing that you'd like to share about inclusion or your experiences or any kind of parting words for your community? You know, I think that sometimes, and I'm sure you've encountered this as well, um, 
sometimes it feels so hard. It feels like administrators are advocating for resources and I am advocating for best practice and humanity. And it blows my mind how people can meet my boys and kids like my boys and not see the endless possibilities. Um, and it's easier sometimes to give up. Um, this is the second district that we have been in. And the first time, we just kind of weren't getting our needs met. We just kind of gave up. We're like, we'll move. We'll make it better. And I'm finally at a place in my life where we're not going anywhere. This is a mountain I'm willing to die on. And this is so incredibly important. And the reason why things are the way they are is because sometimes, understandably, it's easier to say, I'm just going to give up. I can't do this. This is so far from where it needs to be that I can't make an impact. But for me, it's not about the final outcome. It's about the day-to-day process. It's to show my boys who never give up, who are always doing things that make them uncomfortable, that I'm not going to let a little discomfort stop me from doing something this important. And um, I think it was the Dalai Lama who said, if you think one person or thing can't make an impact, like try sleeping in a room with a mosquito. So I think we all, if we were given the ability to speak and to speak up and to speak for what we know is right, I think we have an obligation to share those words for people who don't have that ability. And, you know, my boys have a lot to say, but it's not in a neurotypical language. And so I will speak for them and with them about this. And so I just hope that for those of you in the trenches who feel like it's too difficult, sometimes I quit at night and then I start again in the morning. So you can quit, but just restart because it matters. And that's my my main message. Because it matters. Because it matters, you're going to be that world changer and you are that world changer. And I'm so grateful to have, you know, other people like you along this journey with us. Um, And I'm not a parent. So to have that perspective and to bring it into the conversation is incredibly powerful. And I really do appreciate and thank you for your time. So people can follow you and find you on Facebook. Is there any other shout out or connection or site you want to draw them to before we say goodbye? Nope, that'll do it. You can find me everywhere else from there. (laughs) I love it. Simple, to the point. Yes. Thank you so much for your time today um, and for all the great work you do for all the Graysons and the Parkers out there, but especially for your two boys. Appreciate it. Same to you. Thank you. 